Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We ask if Sebastian Vettel can cut out the errors and hit back in the championship, and whether or not it's time for team orders. Lewis Hamilton leads Sebastian Vettel by 30 points, heading into a quick-fire run of seven races in 10 weeks that will decide the 2018 World Championship. Things are about to get very serious. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to take a look at the state of the title battle and discuss the latest F1 news first is Ben Anderson. You're fresh from test driver duty, I believe. Yes, correct. Uh, I was at Donington Park yesterday driving uh, radical sports cars um, for a track test in Autosport magazine. Um, managed yeah, to keep it out of the wall I did yes uh, which was particularly difficult in the afternoon because it uh, rained like you wouldn't believe at lunchtime uh, washed out the track uh, and uh, that was the point at which I got put in the fastest of the cars the SR8 which is uh, quite close to LMP3 performance uh, and came very close to hitting another radical that spun in front of me at McLean's as well so yeah quite hairy but a lot of fun also joining me is Scott Mitchell what have you been up to Scott uh, last week, I think I missed the second podcast last week. I was already, I was too busy at McLaren meeting uh, their 2019 Formula One driver, Lando Norris and team boss uh, Zach Brown to have a bit of a chat about, you know, the, the, the whys of picking him and the challenges. And I've also spent a good part of the last 24 hours working out what to do with my wild card in fantasy football. That's that's basically taken up the majority of the last couple of days for me. So yeah, pretty pretty busy week. Did you wear your crazy inflatable jumper to McLaren? It's not inflatable, it's just baggy. If I was wearing an inflatable jumper, I'd give you permission to mock me. But this is baggy with different coloured sleeves because it's fun. It's fun and fashionable, and you wouldn't know it, and you wouldn't know it. Baggy and at the top. for the benefit of the podcast listeners, I've just pointed at Ben Anderson and Ed Straw in an Ed Straw style of gesturing that's over the top and unnecessary and on every second syllable. Baggy at the top and narrow at the sleeves. That's how he describes. Well, you basically look like you've torn off your sleeves in some alarming jumper accident, and you tried to stitch in some new sleeves but you had to take them from three separate other jumpers yeah that's yeah that's what happened oh there we go that, that would explain it doesn't yeah. seem like a very efficient use of jumpers oh it's pretty efficient it works I, I, I wear one jumper so yeah pretty efficient 
Well, there we go. That's uh, that's a good uh, a good segment for an audio only uh, platform. I dread to think what people have got in mind for what uh, what Scott's wearing. But, it clears uh, up jumper gate though. Exactly. That's that's the important thing. And uh, yeah, anybody sees any photos in this podcast which they won't because we haven't taken any as yet, uh, then uh, that that will explain that. Well, let's get on to some serious matters, Ben. Uh, we saw another Sebastian Vettelera at Monza spinning mm. after contact with Lewis Hamilton while trying to hang on to second place. It's not the first mistake we've seen him make this season. And given the pace of the Ferrari, this kind of thing's in serious danger of costing him the World Championship, isn't it? Yeah, it looks that way. Um, if you look back through the season and consider some of the races where, or all the races where Vettel's thrown away points or lost points to to errors, he should be ahead in this title race by probably 40 points but instead he's trailing by 30 and he's running out of races with which to rectify that situation um we saw after the summer break Ferrari take a step in performance at Spa and Lewis Hamilton seemed quite downbeat after finishing second in that race to Vettel feeling that even though he's got the championship or had the championship lead almost Boxing clever in a worse car. He felt that, well, the next two races are going to be really difficult. Ferrari's power advantage is going to count. I'm going to lose most of that advantage to Vettel and then it's going to be really tough for the remaining races. But he's ended up extending his advantage because of Vettel's error at Monza. And you just feel like the way Hamilton won that race against the odds, one of his best ever performances, he'll really have his tail up now from this point to the end of the season. And Vettel heads to Singapore, scene of his disastrous 2017 implosion at the start, under pressure now, whereas he should have been going into that race with the momentum behind him. So difficult time if you're if you're Vettel, I think. I think Vettel is sort of, the, now he's fallen foul of what happened with Rosberg when Nico Rosberg was teammates to Hamilton and fighting in that exclusive Merck fight for the title because we've seen Vettel make these mistakes before and they've been costly to differing degrees but now this is an error he's made in wheel-to-wheel combat with Lewis so now Hamilton has that in his pocket now going forward when they're if they if they go wheel-to-wheel again this year Hamilton knows he's got the beating of Vettel yes he knows that there's a mistake in him in battle and I think that is a really really bad weakness to have when you're going up in a fight against Hamilton strange thing with Vettel is it just seems to be in the in the pressure moments and when things aren't going exactly as he wants that it, it just loses that ability just to drive the races in front of him. It's, it's a really concerning thing. And the, the trouble is, I'm sure in the cold light of day, Vettel will be able to identify that and say, yeah, I need not to do that. But then when you're in those pressure situations, by definition, you've got a tiny amount of time to make your decisions, you're reacting. And that that's when that's when the cracks appear. And only, every, every mistake he's made this season has been at root, a small error. But yes. these things have big consequences. This is what championships turn on. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what he makes of that incident at Monza with another review because after the race, he was saying that he felt Hamilton left him no space and squeezed him on the outside line. But when you look at it objectively, Hamilton did everything right and there was plenty of room for Vettel. He just understeered into him. So will Vettel revisit his opinion when he's looked at that? with the adrenaline no longer flowing, or will he maintain that he couldn't have done anything differently like he did after Singapore, where it was clear that he made a misjudgment moving across at the start, trying to cover uh, Max Verstappen, but yet maintained in an interview with you, Ed, that uh, he did nothing wrong and he wouldn't change anything if it happened again. Yeah, I had a good debate with him about that, but uh, I'm talking of Singapore, it's appropriate because we're about to go to Singapore. Uh, but the, the the way I interpret that start is he knew he had a golden opportunity to win. That Hamilton was down the grid. There was a chance to have a really big point swing. This was one of the only few tracks last year where Ferrari had a decisive advantage. And I think as soon as he made the poor initial getaway, it kind of turned into that, oh, it's not going as I wanted it to. How do I try and stabilise this? Rather than just playing okay, and I'm saying, okay, I've, I've made a bad launch. Now all I can do is, after that, bad first two seconds all I can do now is drive the rest of the race perfectly because you you can never make up for what you've lost you can only do a 100% job from once that once that error is made and that's that's how I see the 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 Singapore thing and this is what we've seen this year just those moments where I feel I I feel that the Monza mistake was at heart down to the fact he didn't get Raikkonen at the first corner yes that played a part in where they were at the second chicane but I think it was just like it's like that mindset thing you know, yeah. we've all been, we've all been in races at much 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 lower levels, and you know I've certainly had things where if you expect the first corner to go better, and then it's like you make mistakes after for no reason. Obviously, they're much bigger mistakes and much you know very different level, but it's a similar sort of thing. If you've got in your mind what is going to happen, and, it, and doesn't it doesn't happen, happen that's yeah. when it goes wrong. Whereas the best drivers are are outstanding, or the the best drivers at that are really really good at just 
driving what's in front of them. You miss one apex, you just have to hit all the rest. You can't you can't do any more than that. Well, that's what the problem when you become reactive in your driving because then instead of sort of um, approaching the situation calmly and you can then sort of, even though they come at you and you've got like a split second to sort of make your decision and, and make your judgment, everything's just calmer. It's just, it's not, it's difficult to ever have serenity in a racing car, let alone at the start of a Formula One race. But that's what Vettel loses. It, it just seemed to be where it very quickly unravels. So then he goes down towards the second chicane. And because he's not, as you said, Ed, that's the first corner's not gone the way he expected. So has he not planned for this eventuality or does he just lack the ability in that moment? Does he freeze a little bit? And then by the time he sort of gathers himself together, he's already, he's under attack, he's on the inside. Hamilton said he was surprised that Vettel went to the inside the way he did and carried as much speed as he did under braking like that. So it's almost just like you make one minor error and then that leads to a minor misjudgment and then another minor misjudgment. and It then compounds, it just, yeah, doesn't exactly. it? Yeah, I think it, a lot depends on Vettel's mentality going into races. You know, is he a guy that uh, fastidiously visualises every possibility and tries to go in with a definitive plan? Or is he better off just being instinctive and reactive? There's you know two schools of thought, really. One says that you're better off at the start of a race when everything is so chaotic and you can't control what your rivals are doing to just try to make the best start you can and then take the race from there. Another school would say, if you can plan in your mind for every eventuality, you'll never be surprised and you can stay calmer and make clearer decisions. But whatever Vettel has been doing, it doesn't seem like it's working out for him in those particular stressful circumstances. I think it depends on the driver what works best for them, largely. Yeah, it's true. clearly that it's not quite working for Vettel and that's, that's what's going on. I say all the errors that have been made have been really small they're not stupid idiotic things but but they all count in a championship don't they yeah so it's Baku trying to take the lead at the restart into the first corner hit the bump I I take issue with Baku because I feel like at that point in the season he's just going for a for a win and he's not playing the percentages which is a laudable thing to do so early on and he locking up like that is so it's so on the edge between being a mega passing move and a mistake so I, I kind of feel that yeah, in, but, in, but, if you had that situation again, he wouldn't do anything. You wouldn't say to him, don't make the move because you can't predict that Bottas is then going to get a puncture and drop out of the no, race. No, I, think, it, I think he it, should do the same thing but again it, but, it's one of, it. but it's one of those things, again, like we say, fine lines, all the races count for the same amount of points. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's an area where just being slightly on the wrong side of a really marginal thing. Like I say, it's, it's a really, really simple. It's an little, understandable little error, error but it's yeah. an error nonetheless, isn't it? Yeah. It, it still shows in your, your tally at the, at the end of the year. And I think, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean he was... I wouldn't say he was wrong to try the move. No, okay. But it, it was just, uh, again, not just, just ending up on the wrong side of it and then it starts to become a become a pattern. And it works really well, I guess, for Hamilton's mentality because each Vettel error just builds a greater sense in Hamilton that he's got this championship. Exactly. And even if the car isn't quite there, he can make the difference. And Hamilton largely hasn't had too many big errors. I mean, actually, as it happened, Baku was one of the races where he did have a big error because he had to look up at the same corner earlier in the race and that compromised his strategy. As it happened, he lucked, lucked in in that race and still won it. But as his demeanour after the race showed, he, he knew he, he'd not won that race, you know. Yeah. Mighty as his Monza win was, his Baku win was not one of his, was not one of his best victories, let's, uh, no. let's put it that way. But, you know the French Grand Prix start when he drove into Bottas. That was a that was a strange one, which was just a, a genuine mistake. He wasn't trying to make a move, but just something wasn't wasn't quite right in the way he was uh, he was approaching the corner. The Germany mistake again, really difficult conditions, but even so, he had the race lead. You know, slid off it. All all these things uh, all, all these things add up, and it, I think it's it's in those periods where you have to really be an improviser. I think Vettel is absolutely outstanding. At working progressively through a Grand Prix weekend, getting the most out of the car, he's he's brilliant at that. I always hark back to the the blown diffuser days when he used to be able to just the way he drove the car was absolutely incredible. You know, a true feat of driving brilliance because he was basically giving the car more grip and downforce than it should have had because of the way he was using the throttle. You know, really advanced driving techniques, they're stunning stuff. But that's what he needs, isn't it? He craves the stability from the car that yeah. Hamilton doesn't quite rely on to the same degree. And you could see even in difference between Hamilton and Bottas at Monza, Bottas wavering on setups, going back and forth, getting the car more compliant, but then struggling on the brakes, on the bumps. Whereas Hamilton is just so brilliant at dealing with those strange changes in grip and that really shows up in the wet weather where he's almost 
peerless and Vettel just doesn't quite have that same feel I think in when the car is difficult but when it's stable and doing what it should do he's absolutely excellent at getting the most out of it as you say I think that's what shows in the storyline that we've seen this season so where Vettel's mistakes have been made have come in those unpredictable sort of on a knife edge moments and while I don't think you can necessarily train for that explicitly it probably comes back to sort of experience they've had earlier in their career where Hamilton is Hamilton just comes off in will-to-will battle better more often than he doesn't and Vettel tends to be the opposite to that and I'm not saying Vettel can't race because we've seen plenty of examples where where he can fight back through the field or, or will-to-will battles that sort of thing passing Alonso on the grass at Curva Grande yeah, that was one of the best well, ones it's just it, he he is good and he can do it it's just when it's absolute maximum pressure I don't agree that uh, with the assertion that, that a driver can be at their best under pressure I think you revert to a sort of base level under maximum pressure and depending on that scenario, depending on how much experience you've got in that scenario and therefore how good you are at dealing with it, that determines how good a job you do in it. So it's not that when Hamilton and Vettel are going wheel to wheel on the first lap into the second chicane at Monza, they they go, okay, well, massive pressure here, but it's okay, I'm going to perform 100% of my ability. It's right. In this difficult scenario where you're probably not going to be at 100%, how do you handle it? And Hamilton absolutely nails it on the outside and Vettel is just not quite as good in that particular scenario so then so then Vettel makes the mistake Hamilton comes off best and that's happened time and time again this season and I I think it's got to the point now where Vettel can rally all he wants in himself and in his performances but this is now not just in terms of points but mentally it's Hamilton's championship to lose I think Monza turn two or turn three I guess it is no turn four it is technically uh, really comes any, any advance to, on that? No, I'm going to stick with four. Yeah, I'm to, stick to with say four. the second chicane. Is second much chicane. Uh, it really comes down to, as you said, Ed, that first corner losing the lead to Raikkonen because I think Vettel was obsessed with trying to get that lead at the second chicane. He's focused solely on Raikkonen and his car's movements, and almost not forgot, but failed to pay enough attention to what Hamilton was doing behind. Because if Vettel just moves to the right and takes a normal line. Raikkonen's blocking really Hamilton's chances of lunging down the inside and passing Vettel so Vettel keeps second place and then has a chance to attack Raikkonen later it was almost as if he was desperate to get Raikkonen on the first lap rather than thinking okay I'm second just stay second make sure I keep that on the first lap and then we can work on Kimi later the worrying thing is that from a championship perspective basically we want to see a good championship battle that goes down to the wire and yeah 30 points it's it's more than a race victory's worth, so it is significant. 30 points is pullbackable, but what it does mean is if Vettel has a mechanical failure or someone takes him out in Singapore and Hamilton wins, then if it, once it gets up beyond two wins, you know, it's very, very rare we've ever seen that sort of size of, of, of point swing. Especially when those two are likely to finish first and second yeah, exactly, in most yeah, races exactly. with their teammates playing supporting And goals. that in turn builds more pressure in terms of uh, having to do well. I mean, I still think that the Ferrari's a very quick car. It's been quicker than the Mercedes, I think, on pure pace, nine of the 14 races this year. Yeah, they're so in the that, fight more or at the head of the fight more often than last year, certainly. Massively they? so, massively so. But it's, uh, yeah, I, I feel that Vettel needs to go to Singapore and get a big result close the points gap again and just try and get to get things so there's no question he can win this championship the Ferrari's good enough he's good enough he just needs to not come out the wrong side of these of these uh splits shall we say how about team order Scott we saw a bit of a hint of that at Monza with Bottas he was told to hold up Raikkonen when he was left out after his, his pit stop are Raikkonen and Bottas going to play a key role as number twos and how important is it that the two teams actually do use them properly well, well, they should. They should play the number two roles. But it was, Monza was a bit weird because obviously Vettel, Vettel thought he'd. Pro- I guess Vettel thought he'd have Kimi at the start, and Kimi attacked so aggressively into turn one. He had a massive lock up and didn't make it easy for his teammate and held the lead. And then for, later on in the race, Bottas looked like he was being sacrificed to help Hamilton, and he was obviously kept out to keep Kimi at bay. But in doing so, he drove at such a strong pace that he actually improved his own race and laid the foundations for him nicking the podium from Verstappen at the end. So Monza was a bit weird, but I I, I, I still think that, that Kimi won't be that direct challenger to, to, to Vettel going, going forward. And I don't think Bottas will be for Hamilton as well. So the key question there is, 
on their respective teams' good weekends, can they really get in front of their teammates' title rival? And on the bad weekends, how far adrift are they going to be? And are they just going to be strategically sacrificed? So rather than getting in the mix and making life difficult on merit, are they going to drop back and then be held on this pointless, really really long first stint so that there's some kind of on-track holding up, that sort of thing? It's, It's going to be strategic and... Although Mercedes and Toto Wolf, you know, they always say that they don't like team orders, they're not cool. They're gonna it's gonna have to be implemented because Ferrari have got two cars in the mix and, and Mercedes has struggled at times when they've only got one rival, let alone two. So I think team orders will be crucial. I feel like things have maybe switched around a little bit with the team orders side. So everyone had this impression that Raikkonen was just number two to Vettel and that's the way it is, and Vettel's a preordained guy that's gonna go for the title. And we've seen Raikkonen left out on some insane strategies, as you just mentioned, like doing incredibly long stints, looking like his own race is completely screwed, maybe just to help Vettel. And while Bottas has been, you know, promised, oh, you you know, you're equal, number one, you're not the wingman, you've got your own chance. Obviously, he had chances to win races early in the year and not only through his own uh, fault has he not been able to win one, which, as he said, is quite amazing, really, given how well he's driven at the start of the season. But at Monza... it seemed clear that Mercedes has finally accepted they need to back Hamilton. And even Bottas was saying, well, if it's in the right circumstances, I'm sure I'll do it. And yeah, they can say leaving him out for that long stint helped him in his battle with Verstappen. But of course, the best way to have got Verstappen if you're just focusing on Bottas is to undercut Red Bull and they didn't do that. So it's kind of having... Your cake and eat it a little bit, isn't it? Saying, well, this, yeah, it did sort of help because the time isn't too different theoretically, but also there's no doubt that the main reason Bottas was out there is to hurt Raikkonen and help Hamilton. And of course, Raikkonen in that race wasn't driving for Vettel at all. He got pole, contested the first corner, held the lead, didn't move over, and suddenly he looks like a driver who is racing for himself, not really for Ferrari. And we saw in Germany how tortured they're efforts were in trying to get him to move over for Vettel it's not straightforward so suddenly Ferrari seems to have a bit more tension with the team order situation than Mercedes does the thing I find strange is just how terrified teams seem to be of of team orders obviously we had this big backlash after Austria 2002 when Barrichello let Schumacher passed out of the last corner and yeah that was a massive own goal and that, that led to the team orders ban which was lifted at the end of 2010 after the Hockenheim thing when Alonso let past Massa the famous uh, Fernando is faster than you messages but obviously the team orders ban is is hard to hard to enforce and I think teams are so paranoid about being seen to do this but it's all a question of situations and circumstances the Austria 2002 one was such a big problem for two reasons firstly Schumacher already early in the season was a country mile ahead in the world championship he didn't need those points yeah and secondly because Barrichello didn't adhere to the order until right at the end to make a point made it, a farce it, of the race it, exactly yeah. and and there's there's different gradation Valtteri Bottas is what 97 points behind Lewis Hamilton He's not going to win the world championship. He just isn't. That that's a fact. So you heard it here first, listeners. It's not like it's some preordained thing. Yeah, that clip will come back to haunt me if somehow he does, but he won't because <laughs> that would be that would be an unprecedented swing, particularly in this number of races. But I don't think anyone's got a problem with with that happening. It's not like they decided at the start of the season this is going to happen. Teams will back their best will back their best driver, and it's not necessarily even about sacrificing people. It's just doing things like what Ferrari didn't do at Monza, not giving Vettel the toe off Raikkonen in qualifying was a was a bit of a, a misstep and whatever else happened there that meant Vettel lost the toe to Hamilton who was ahead I'm not quite sure I think how, how, I think that's what Vettel was annoyed about I'm still not entirely sure what happened with the Ferrari management at that outlap for things to go so badly wrong because how far behind is Raikkonen in the championship it's, it's 62 points because Raikkonen I imagine is operating under the system he did when he was teammates to Felipe Massa and Ferrari would pick a driver at a certain point in the season hmm. whoever was best off in the championship I mean usually that was after Monza so maybe Monza was the last race where Raikkonen can legitimately do his own thing before he's actually asked right now you're the supporting guy yeah I don't have a problem with them with them doing that I mean you don't you don't want to get to ridiculous degrees where you're using people blatantly to spoil other people's races but as long as it's legitimately done and fairly done I, I don't I don't have a problem with that and I'd say exactly the same if the if the roles were reversed if it's Hamilton and Vettel are out of contention it's the other and it's Bottas and Raikkonen going to title you have to play it the same way I find it very curious the the point you made just now about how uh, teams are scared and paranoid about this sort of spectre of team orders because 
it, it, it confuses me a little bit how fans of, well, of F1, but also you see it in other sports as well, they don't like when something feels not necessarily artificial, but they don't seem to like it when some kind of structure or logic takes precedent over sort of like heart and emotion and, and something raw. And this is going to be one of the, the greatest transitions in the history of the Autosport podcast. But Ed, if you remember when we That's were in claim. the French Grand Prix, we were in the media centre and um, we may or may not have had the England-Panama World Cup game on in the background. And John Stones was on a hat-trick and England got a penalty. And basically everyone was just furious. Like, oh, why are they not letting John Stones take it? Why are they not letting him take it? And it's like, well, because it's goal difference. We need to score as many goals as possible so it makes sense to put your proper penalty taker on there. So there was pure... there was complete logic exactly the same as applies in f1 in team orders total logic to this it makes absolute sense in terms of getting the getting the end goal but the fans the supporters are outraged because they've got that kind of organization involved rather than just sort of letting something play out and do something that's just that's really brilliant and natural and raw and i think those when they do that people tend to miss that there is a much bigger picture at play Bottas talks about it when he says the reason he accepts team orders is because ultimately the goal is for Mercedes to win both titles and he can't win his so he has a duty to the team to play whatever role is required to 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 win the constructors he does yeah he has a duty to the team and the employees and the business and trying to secure as much money as you can and blah 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 but of course you know from the sport pure sporting point of view and the you know the uh, racing point of view you want it to be best man wins and you want everybody to be going as fast as they can or competing as best they can according to their abilities in that event don't you so i can i get the logic but if you're watching a race you want to see if kimi Raikkonen has a chance to win that race him go for it and do it not perform well enough to do it and then have to give that race up to somebody else because that's not the result that you should be seeing as a fan even if the logic behind that decision makes sense yeah, it comes down to how you want to see a, a sporting competition, ultimately, doesn't it? But I think it's one of those things, if you get to the end of the season, if a team, you know, nobody will give a team any credit for, oh, well, you've been sporting during the season, but you've missed the championship by three points. No, Ferrari lose the championship by a few points. They'll just be idiots for, for, getting, it, for getting it wrong, ultimately, won't they? So I think, again, I wouldn't advocate this as like the first race of the season or anything like that. But as, you know, there's a competitive picture where Hamilton and Vettel have been the strongest of those two drivers anyway. Uh, and you can look at it other ways. Like effectively, Vettel effectively helped Raikkonen in qualifying in the yeah. in, in Monza. There were other complications there, but it's, it's I mean it's a complicated thing. A rare think- example where the toe works. You see so many <laughs> yeah, drivers wrong, yeah. and teams saying, "Oh, you know, there's no point trying to plan the toe because you end up messing it up and compromising yourself elsewhere." elsewhere. But actually, they they pulled it off Ferrari in that. Yeah, that it makes, makes makes a bit of a change. But yeah, they they also lost that Vettel toe to Hamilton, so I'm not quite sure how how that happened. But uh, yeah. I think it's all about how you do it and I think it's also about teams should be honest about it if they do it. It frustrates me when teams aren't and I think that's more insulting to the, to the intelligence of, of, of fans than it than anything else when you have all this, oh, it's a brake problem or this, that and the other, etc. So it's, it's just frustrating. Ben, after Monaco, Singapore was the race Red Bull thought he had the best chance at but things seem to be a little bit different now. I think Red Bull, no one's really expecting them to be him with a chance of setting the pace there with the way the development war has gone in uh, in recent months. No, Max Verstappen isn't only pretty straight in his you know, assessment of where Red Bull Renault package will stand on a given weekend and he feels that they won't be on the pace or setting the absolute pace in Singapore like they did last season or certainly they did in the build-up to qualifying. I think the Renault engine development hasn't quite gone as planned. Uh, they've They're making more of the latest... Uh, mobile fuel in the Red Bull car but we have to remember also last season that Red Bull brought a big update package to Singapore and that was a big part of giving them the extra lift they needed to carry the fight to Ferrari and I just don't think they're quite in that game in the same way this season as Scott mentioned the development war between Mercedes and Ferrari is, is ramping up and up and up as they both compete for the championship and Red Bull aren't in that fight so the their priorities are slightly different Snappen feels that if they can be maybe three or four tenths off they've got a chance but this sounds like one of those oh we can be close enough to be a spoiler in the fight and take advantage of mistakes rather than actually being properly in the in the mix for, for victory to put it into context how odd 
that is, this is a team that's won three Grand Prix this season. And you remember, was it 2016 when they were when Red Bull was comfortably behind Mercedes, but went to Singapore and very nearly won. Ricardo was chasing down Rosberg in the closing stages and, and nearly and nearly nicked it. And and that was that was back in 2016. Now, two years later, how how is that partnership, that package in the situation two years later where they've won three Grand Prix this season, dominated Monaco, but the way that that Ferrari-Merck battle has gone at the front and the fact that Red Bull-Renault hasn't made progress is since Monaco, they've fallen away to the point where they don't think they're going to Singapore as favourites. Inter- like interestingly, looking at the uh, comparison of the pace, Monza 2016 and 2018, Red Bull was almost an identical margin off the outright pace, which says a lot, doesn't it, about what's happened this year. Yeah, I think the, it all really comes down to the engine development, doesn't it? The Renault seem to consistently, certainly at the management level, underestimate the challenge and overestimate their ability to meet it. And I think they expect it to be a lot, lot closer to Ferrari and Mercedes in that particular battle from the start of the season. And they probably were with their first iteration, but then as in-season developments have been brought in Renault just hasn't been able to keep up and you know the long-standing reliability problems with the MG UK they've been battling to resolve all these things hold you back and of course the relationship between Red Bull and Renault has broken down again as Red Bull's decided its future lies with Honda so that doesn't help in terms of closer collaboration and getting the absolute most out of the package so um, yeah it's a shame because we all want to see those three teams competing properly in every race but um, I just don't think Red Bull are going to be properly in the mix. Hopefully they'll be up there fighting for the podium, but it's it's difficult to see how they can really do more than that, especially with the rate and the success with which Mercedes and Ferrari are developing their cars. Yeah, they've been uh, blown out of the water a little bit, even with the uh, the third step of the, the Renault engine coming coming online. Now, Scott, there's been a bit of talk this well, the past week or so about booing of drivers. Obviously, in the case of Monza, it's Lewis Hamilton after winning a winning at Monza. Kimi Räikkönen says he doesn't think booing should happen. Where where do you stand on this? Booing as a whole or booing in F1? I think they're different questions. Well, well, let's let's start with booing in F1. The booing the booing of drivers you don't like when they do well. Um, as a general rule in F1, I don't like it. Boo. But I find that. Very good, very good. What does the, the, the horse, horse that disagree yeah, with Scott horse? Mitchell think? It, it won't be booing, it'll it be, be neighing. neighing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the equivalent in the horse world. I, I think no to booing, but I kind of understand it and don't have a massive problem with it at Monza. I get that that's one rule for one and, and another for every other Grand Prix, but there is no other Grand Prix where one a team means that much to the people that are there. and like You don't have... Like for example, when you go to Germany, you don't have the, the Germans excite so excited about Mercedes in the same way. When you go to Britain, it's not the it's not the case for for Williams and McLaren. So was there some booing for Vettel at Silverstone this year? I, can't, I honestly can't remember. I that. think there was a little bit, and there has been in the in the past as well. But again, that's British fans supporting the British driver. Here, this isn't. It's not a personal thing, I don't think. It's just because the partisan crowd are pro Ferrari and therefore they're anti anyone who isn't Ferrari. It's not the same. I don't. I, I get that I'm sort of almost I'm playing devil's advocate to a point, but I, I don't think that's quite the same as if a, a crowd supports a local driver and therefore is against his specific rival. This is more of a case of an entire country is behind this one team and therefore it's anti that team's rivals. I'm not sure I have anything to say on this subject. To be honest, have you ever gone? Have you, what, what sporting events have you gone to? What, what have you been to? Football, presumably. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I find it uh, bizarre. Really, I mean, from a from a pure sporting point of view, it's it's an unsporting thing to do. But then the fans are not competing in the race, are they? So they're there to see the spectacle, and if they're a partisan crowd, they want to see their team slash drivers win the race. And if they don't, they're unhappy. If you're Mercedes, you should probably see it as a compliment, a backhanded compliment or a victory that you, you're able to get on the podium, be interlopers in this this dream of the Tifosi and basically get on their nerves in that way. And Vettel, equally, if he does that, Silverstone, if he wins the race in Hamilton's backyard, he should take it as an extra victory for him that he's annoyed the crowd in that way. In football, booing's quite 
normal, isn't it? In fact, teams boo their own uh, fans, boo their own team if they don't perform to expectations. I guess it's hard on the 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 people involved if you take it personally, but I I kind of divorce it from what's actually going on and just see it as part of the the spectacle. It's pantomime, really, isn't it? Well, at that's the end of the day, a big part of sport is the entertainment factor, the pageantry that goes along with it, and you can't ask individuals to become you know huge supporters of an individual or a team to get very enthusiastic and really vested in the interests of this one party and then not expect that to have another consequence in terms of them therefore feeling less uh, supportive of, of others so that you you immediately create this this confrontation basically within yeah. within this one person and you're right. It is normal in in, in other sports. I'm a I'm, I'm a football fan, and and I, I don't know about you, Ben, but I have a specific club that I support. So when I go to to Charlton Athletic games, um, I get massively invested in the terrible performance that my team's putting on, and and I hate every <laughs> everything that goes against it. And if I think that the the linesman's an idiot or the referee's wrong, I'll have a go at them. You jeer at the opponents, you jeer at the opponents' fans. All of that it is part of it. What I don't like is when you leave your brain at the gate. Don't yeah, you? basically, what I don't like is um, I, I still think even in those situations you have there's a line. So, for example, all of the background stuff that's going on with my club at the moment is very negative. The fans hate the owner. But what I hate is that there are a few fans that go there and basically decide to protest in the stands by constantly booing. And so all you're doing there is creating a negative environment for the people you're supposed to be supporting. Mm. So how are they how are they going to perform? So there is always a line, and I think it is different sport to sport. But and I think in F1, I don't, as a general rule, I, I don't quite understand why you would, apart from at Monza. I completely yeah. understand what happens at Monza. Elsewhere, less so. I think that's the the point, isn't it? It's unusual in Formula One because it's not so tribal in the way that football is. And therefore, when you do get it so vociferously at one race, it, people make a big deal of it. Ultimately, I agree with Kimi Raikkonen, probably it shouldn't happen, but I don't care about it enough to make a big deal of it. Yeah, I'm inclined to say the same thing. I personally would, would not do it. Uh, I don't even really approve of booing at football. I do attend football but I'm, I'm sort of non, non-partisan when I uh, when I go along but I, th- I think you know there's there's different reasons why people boo people and some of those reasons can be uh, should we say less easily shrugged off but I think for for the most part it's uh, it's just kind of the partisan sporting fan thing and it does happen at other races as well we should say I mean Vettel yeah. said when when he first well, when his first Grand Prix he said in the press conference he said oh in 2008 I thought they loved me but then I know a bit better because then when I won with with Red Bull later beating Ferrari uh, people didn't like me doing it quite so much <laughs> so yeah. you know it's it's not only it's not, I, I like the way he dealt with it he just sort of said yeah you, know, you can be He's, he, I, yeah, I feel shrug it off I feel like in that situation he was Taking it in the in the right sort of spirit and uh, and and doing well. I- and Hamilton did too, didn't he? Because he even said, you know, he 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 always talks about the energy of the crowd and how he feeds off it at Silverstone. And he said at Monza, it was the inverse. Yeah, they were booing me, not just in the race, but earlier in the weekend. But he used that against them and said, well, that's that gives me more incentive to rub their face in it by beating their favourite team, which he did. So. Um, it doesn't have to be this big negative thing that that crushes people. It's just part of the show that you can kind of divorce from what people are doing. You, as Scott said, you can't have uh, asked for people to be passionate followers of one team or particular drivers, and and then have a dispassionate reaction to the result. Yeah, that's 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 very very true. We're not going to talk too much about the driver market in this podcast. We've done that lots recently, but Ben, we've got one driver, Esteban Ocon. He might be without a race seat in 2019, which is absolutely astonishing. This this can't be a, can't be allowed to happen, can it? Well, it shouldn't be. Yeah, um, it would be a real shame if he if he doesn't find a seat. Um, and it, I guess it comes back to this um, this idea of manufacturer power or certain team power in terms of owning rights to drivers and not having places to put them. All the teams that should be looking at. Esteban Ocon seriously are all put off by the fact that he's tied to Mercedes and I get that because they say well why would we want to take another team's driver invest in their development and then hand them back over equally Mercedes say well you know it's for the good of 
partly for the good of the sport that we've invested in this driver that otherwise wouldn't be here and that contributes to Formula One and he, you know, he deserves to be on the grid and that's fine too. But I mean, unless Mercedes are willing to let him go, it does seem, or they found another team or take over another team somehow, it does seem that he's going to be without a seat, which is, as you say, a travesty. I think it rams home the importance of Red Bull to F1. You consider that Mercedes has, you know, it backed Pascal Verlein, it's backing Ocon, it's backing George Russell as well, but nowhere near to the degree that Red Bull backs drivers to the point where Red Bull has an entire team on the grid that, okay, it's going through one of those weird troughs at the moment in terms of junior driver production because it doesn't have anyone obvious to put in its cars for next year. But that is a an enormous investment at a huge cost to Red Bull. And I think I'm right in saying that Torosso actually costs Red Bull more than the senior team because although the budget's lower, they don't have the same sponsors and prize money and stuff like that. So it, it comes at a huge cost to, to, to mass shits. And sometimes I think that Red Bull really doesn't get the credit. It, it deserves it deserves for that. And I understand what, what Merck's saying and I know that they picked up Ocon when his previous backers gravity that was all a bit shaky so yeah there's a very good chance that Ocon wouldn't have progressed without without Mercedes but they haven't it's not like they funded him from the very beginning so that's why one of the reasons I think that Toto Wolff is sort of saying okay well now we need to actually reconsider the viability of our junior program because we don't have a team it would cost us too much money to have a team so if we haven't got anywhere to put them we're going to do them a disservice if we then keep hold of them just for the sake of having them. So what's the point in maintaining that program? We might as well relinquish it and then hopefully do the best for them and let them get seats elsewhere. The point of the program was to groom a young driver ready to move into the top team. That's the point, isn't it, surely? So that's what Red Bull does. As Christian Horner says, they always take a risk on the young driver and promote them up. Arguably, they've done that too aggressively recently and that's why they're struggling to fill their junior team. But Mercedes and Ferrari seem to have kind of aped that Red Bull system a bit and thought, oh, well, they're getting some some real um, change out of having a junior scheme and pushing those drivers into the top team. And they've invested in the youth and made a, a virtue of that and said, oh, look at this great service we're doing and we're flipping Formula 1 back to being about ability and not being about money. But then when it comes to the crunch, as yet, although we anticipate that Ferrari might finally promote a driver into the works team from their academy, they're yet to actually sign on the dotted line. So Mercedes have gone for the conservative option and rehired Bottas, not promoted Ocon. Ferrari hopefully will take Leclerc, but they haven't yet. And unless you're prepared to back that driver all the way, the scheme doesn't make any sense. And Red Bull consistently do that. Ferrari and Mercedes haven't done that as yet. And that's the main difference, isn't it? And there's a question mark over whether Renault's academy is actually going to yield a an F1 driver for them as well. They're in a position at the moment where they've got a couple of guys in in, in F2, an affiliated driver in F, an, an affiliated driver in GP3, and, and at lower levels, but no one that's really sort of screaming, "Put me in an F1 car in the next couple of years." So it is only Red Bull, isn't it? I'm, I'm not making that up. I'm not missing someone obvious. I mean, no, you say Leclerc is wrong. the obvious example, but in terms of an actual regular program that produces these results. It is only Red Bull, and the only way that works is because they fund an entire two-car team. So F1 is fundamentally broken in that sense and needs some kind of major overhaul to to address it. Well, it links back to the the paucity of manufacturers involved in Formula 1 as well, doesn't it? Because before the financial crash in 2008, you had many more manufacturers with affiliate programs and drivers that they would fund up through the ranks, and then they'd either race for the works team or the team that used the works engine and then some would be blooded in teams that had a customer deal to use that engine and now we only have four manufacturers and until recently we only had three so if those manufacturer teams have junior driver programs their uh, their customer teams are going to be monopolized by drivers linked to those programs I think the big trouble is as well, it's all connected to the, the whole business model of, of Formula One because some of the teams that don't want to take drivers who are affiliated to the big teams don't want to do it because they want to take drivers with independent backing. Also, if you're going to put a good young driver in, ideally you want to be in a position where you can benefit from that down the line like Williams did with Bottas when they sold him onto, onto Mercedes. Yes. I actually think there'd be a lot more... Williams, for example. I think if they were in a, a much more 
neutral position financially. And Mercedes said to them, right, we'll, we'll let you have Ocon for a year or two. They think, actually, do you know what? He's a very good driver, better than anyone else we can get. Yeah, we can put him in because we can Great afford Great shout to. for them, yeah. But it feels a little bit to me like now Mercedes are one of the few teams who are just sucking in all the money. And then they're saying, well, all these people aren't helping us. And you're like, well, actually, let's have a slightly more collaborative approach to to it because it's again it's this this two tier F one so I think it's mm. it's slightly more complicated than teams aren't aren't willing to do it. But you're quite right, Ben, that sort of two thousand seven eight that sort of mid two thousands period was it was a great time for drivers coming through because the best were coming through. The cream generally did rise. There weren't that many drivers who weren't of a of a, of a very high level. But I think Ocon. He's not just a decent driver, he's a very, very good driver. So the, the fact he could end well, up... Well, Max Verstappen level are certainly very close, isn't Definitely, he? Definitely, yeah. So, you know, Mercedes picked him up after they couldn't or didn't get Verstappen. So that's a top, top talent. And he's proved also on his, on his during his time on the grid that he belongs there. I mean, Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel have been singing his praises, haven't they, recently, how good he is. So, as Hamilton said, it does show that there's something broken when a driver that good just cannot find a seat when they've proved how good they are in Formula 1 as well they're not just somebody pushing up against the against the grid well what's ridiculous is that this is the guy who was very there was a really good chance that he might he would be in the Mercedes next year if if Bottas hadn't delivered then Mercedes would have gone we want you but Bottas has done too good a job to be basically ignored and he's a known quantity and a sort of more conservative option so so that all all played against against Ocon but he was ultimately in the in the frame so how has someone gone how can someone how can F1 be the way it is that the guy who was in contention to to drive for the what could be what the a five-time double title winning team next year to not being on the grid at all it's just but, ridiculous well, the, ran, the random takeover of well not necessarily random but the takeover of Force India is what's really scuppered him isn't it because he has or did have a contract to race for that team in 2019 that was part of the original deal so uh, he would have been on the grid even without promotion to the Mercedes works team and they would have calculated that probably when they made the Bottas decision but subsequently things have moved very quickly at Force India they plunge into administration takeover new driver potentially to come in related to that and suddenly the system that you carefully orchestrated your plans around is, has been ripped up. But the problem I have there is that before that, obviously there was another another situation that derailed Ocon and that was Ricardo deciding to go to Renault Yes, because he should have gone there. But don't have a problem with that because that is top-line established Grand Prix winning driver suddenly available so Renault changes its plans. My problem is that with with how Ocon has been basically screwed over by the Force India situation, it's two individual examples of, of F1's big problem. One is that a team went into administration because it was so badly managed financially. Uh, it, it, it couldn't afford it. It just could not sustain that that level with, with the money that was available to it. And two, it's been rescued by someone who has been funding his son's career for, for ages. And because of Lawrence Stroll's direct investment in the team, Lance will be going there and, and taking a place. Those two things shouldn't be... A, I don't know if it's right to say they shouldn't be allowed to happen because it's elite sport it's a cutthroat business if you don't do a good enough job off track in terms of management of the team you do deserve to get punished but there is surely an indication there that all is not well in F1 for that to have been allowed to happen as easily as it did so that that to especially me especially to a team that finished that high up in the yeah, four two years in a row well, so. well, the big trouble is that the, the the costs involved that have been levied that have been levied on teams for example the the power units they're currently using hugely expensive hugely complicated now to to look back in uh 2007 and 2008 williams ran kazuki nakajima who was a toyota protege and they had an option in that deal either they paid for the engines from toyota or they took nakajima and toyota could afford to do that because and the cost of an engine deal at that point was about a quarter of what you're paying now, maybe even fractionally less. So they could afford to give that in a way that Mercedes Mercedes can't really justify giving completely free engines to a team just to run a driver they may or may not use. And the teams themselves, yeah, you can say they're mismanaging, but you know, Williams, Force India, all these teams, they have no control over how much the engines cost. They've got to do the deal, so it, it, it's just it's symptomatic of, of of the problems here. And you need the top drivers. And it's one thing if you get kind of a good 
sort of middling Grand Prix driver, like if the 11th best driver in Formula 1 drops out, that's a bit unfair and a bit of a shame. But Ocon's not kind of a, you know, he's not somebody who's de- who should be sat in the midfield the rest of his career. He's a guy who's got the capability to win Grand Prix. Yeah, he's meant to be part of the changing of the guard, isn't he? The the future yeah. of the entire championship. So that is, that is a, a big problem. And all these things loop in together, don't they? Because you can say, well, the engine rules are to blame for, um, or the price of the engines are to blame for the customer teams being in trouble. And then you can blame the manufacturer teams for making engines too expensive. And then they can say, well, it's the FIA's fault because they wrote the rules and made us develop these expensive engines. And it just goes, but then the FIA can say, well, if we didn't ask for these expensive engines to be developed, then we wouldn't have any manufacturers in Formula One. And it just goes round and round and round and round. And the same old arguments but ultimately eventually someone has to get a hold of it and and redefine the sport so it's more equitable and has a greater proportion of properly funded teams the best drivers on the grid and more people able to win races and compete properly which is what will make the on-track product closer to what everybody wants it to be but uh, the utopia that we wait for liberty to deliver well it's time for us to head to Singapore now, so please check out autosport.com for all the uh, latest news on F1 and the rest of the world of motorsport, our plus subscriber area. For a small fee, you can read all the very best uh, the very best features and in-depth pieces by the world's leading motorsport journalists. And slag off Ed Straw's driver ratings. Yes, yeah, that's always uh, always good fun. You can uh, you can set your own driver ratings after the race as well, so it's always interesting to compare mine to the, to the rest of the world. Check out Autosport magazine out every Thursday, and please check out sister titles, motorsport.com, and F1 Racing Magazine out monthly. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Reach new career heights with University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business. Flexible MBA and MS options. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired, fearless, unstoppable. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.